Well, hey, everybody. It is, uh, it is so good to see you and to be a part of this with you. And I just want to say as we, as we wrap out of that worship that um, uh, we need to believe that right now in this season. We need to believe that we are standing on the promises that God has made us and that God is moving and that God is working. And uh, that is just a truth that I am reminding myself of every single day right now during this season. I, I can't wait to unpack the text we're going to get into today. And in a few minutes, we're going to do that. But before we do, uh, I just want to share something with you that's been on my heart. Um, I've been concerned for a while now, uh, for, for, for quite a season, and I've been, worried about, um, I've been worried about the church, and I'm not talking about this church, I'm not talking about any specific church, I'm talking about the church in the West, and, and I've had some, uh, some trouble with American Christianity uh, in particular, and, and, and this, is, this is why, I just want to explain this to you. Um, there is a secular vision for people's lives in the world today. There is a secular worldview that exists in our day and age. Um, it, is a, it is a mythology, if you will, about how human beings are supposed to move through their lives. This is the story that people are telling behind the scenes. This is the story we're hearing in commercials. It's the story we're seeing on TV and in movies. There's, there's an expectation that people have in the things that they're upset about. There's all of these things that reveal this. And this mythology is built upon a couple of different concepts. Uh, one aspect of this is hyper-individualism. It is this sense that I am my own person and nobody can tell me what to do or how to live my life and I have to have ultimate freedom to make the choices that I want to make. That's one aspect of this secular vision. The other aspect is what I would call hyper-consumerism. Uh, it's this idea that I just need more and more and more and we constantly consume and that we are put on this planet to somehow consume things. Now, one of the outcomes of this, and, and we see this also as a significant threat in this, is that basically this kind of thinking says that if you can be free enough, and if you can acquire enough, then you can somehow avoid answering or dealing with life's biggest questions. Like, like you, can, you can live a life that, that doesn't really require you to, to find meaning past the upcoming weekend. But you might even say this. You might even say that if you could live this sort of life, you could live a life without God. Like as long as my life is continually being enhanced, as long as I'm continually seeing everything in my world upgraded, I'll be fine. As long as I'm comfortable, as long as I avoid pain, then everything's going to be okay. That, that's a snapshot. That's a thumbnail sketch of, of the storyline or the narrative that's being propagated in our society today. And it's, it's being given to us through bullhorns and, and megaphones. That's how we're hearing it. It is loud. It is dominant. It is everywhere. And you can't really escape it. And so as a result of that, that's what people are believing. That's what people are, are leaning into. That's the story that they're starting to try to line their lives up to. They're fighting for this. This is why they're living. Now, the reason I'm concerned about this and the reason why this uh, worries me is that this secular mythology has created today something that I'll just call pseudo-Christianity. In other words, there is a version of Christianity that exists today that looks like the secular myth's twin brother or twin sibling. The only difference is that the Christian mythology, this Christian pseudo-Christianity, if you will, uh, includes a God. But this God isn't a God like the God of the Bible. This, this God, in theory, just exists only to be our, our grand benefactor, to be like a genie. This, this God is there to fulfill our desires. This God is there to live for us, not us for him. So I just want to ask a question at this point. I want you to think about this for a moment, wherever you are, wherever you're watching this. If this is true, and I, and I truly believe it is, if the Christian vision for life in the West today isn't any different than the secular vision for life, is that really Christian? 
Like, like, like if the desired outcome of Christianity in America today is exactly the same as the secular myth, if, if the ingredients, if 99% of the ingredients of what we're doing is exactly the same as the secular myth, is that really different? As I think about this, I wonder about the questions that people are asking and the things maybe you're wrestling with, and, and sometimes people have asked me this, has the church lost its potency? Or, or I hear people muse and say, you know, the next generation, the, the next generation is, is leaving the church, or are we engaging them? Are they around? Are they interested in this? I hear pastors lament that their attendance numbers are continually dropping, that the church in America is shrinking. But I want to be honest about this. I want us to think about this. If we are offering people a more compelling vision, if we're not telling a different story, if we're not giving people a new, beautiful narrative to live in, why would people stay in church? The reality is brunch is a very attractive option on a Sunday morning if the outcome for church and the secular culture is exactly the same. So, so, so here, here's what I've been noticing lately. The last couple of years, this is, this is the last few years I've been noticing that there's a gap that is growing between the promise of this mythology and its ability to deliver on the promise. The, the contradictions in, in what people are pursuing, the emptiness of what they've been, what, what they've been doing, the, the meaninglessness, the lack of depth, the lack of anything that's, that's of substance, the lack of, of this myth's ability to resolve the deeper issues in our hearts and in our lives, it's starting to be revealed. I've been noticing this. I've been hearing the unrest in our culture. I'm starting to see the anxiety. I'm starting to see people who have given their lives to this inside and outside of the church suddenly grow frustrated and, and sort of angry at this. And then... More recently, along comes a global pandemic. Now the question is, what is really going on amidst this pandemic? Now, if you look around our world right now, there is no doubt, this has created a massive disruption. But amidst this disruption, the very fragile, false promises of our society, of this societal myth, they're being exposed for what they are. And, and here's what interests, it's fascinating about this. Throughout history, disruptions like the one that we're in, I know for many of us, this is the first time we've ever experienced this, but these have happened before in world history. And when they have occurred previously, they've actually resulted in spiritual awakenings. That is, the fragility of what our culture has offered us is revealed. Suddenly, now there is an emergence of people who want the things of God, people that are hungry for depths, people that are hungry for meaning, people that are looking for something of substance. And so there is right now in our world, in our culture, there is an uprooting, I believe, taking place of this pseudo-Christianity. And it is being replaced by spirit-filled faith of biblical Christianity. That's what's taking place right now. God is forming a new humanity. And that new humanity, whether we're comfortable with it or not, it is forged in the fires of this global crisis that we find ourselves in right now. I know, I love what Mark Sayers, uh, who's a pastor down in Australia, what he has to say about this. He says, uh, we need a new generation of Christians who are engaged in mission, kingdom vocational living, cultural engagement, and biblical justice filled with the Holy Spirit, formed by the way of Jesus, and shaped by heavenly wisdom. I couldn't agree more. And I believe that that is what God is doing right now. He's doing it throughout the West. I believe he's doing it in our church right now. I believe God is doing this work among us. 
We are moving from a posture of, of consumption, from attitudes of passivity, to one of contending for God's presence to come with power. Which is why, for the past several weeks, I believe God led us to this book of Acts. We didn't plan this. We didn't see this being aligning with, with what was taking place in our culture. We literally just felt like God was saying to, to go through this book, and then the world turned upside down. But we're going through this book of Acts together because this New Testament book reveals a people who did exactly what we're desiring to do. We're, we're witnessing this, this culture turn because of the way that they're living their lives, the way that they're living out the gospel together. They, they, they've reoriented themselves around patterns of living that allow God's presence to come near for them to live with that sort of purpose. That's what we're seeing. They're operating in God's presence and they are living out the way of Jesus in such a compelling way that the world is forced to take note of this. By the way, um, the way they lived, I, I think I need to reiterate this. It wasn't just a slightly improved version of their cultural narrative. It was a new kind of life. It was a different kind of life. It was contradictory to the things around them. It was, it was unconventional. In fact, in many cases, it was controversial, the way that they were living out their lives. And that's what we're discovering. A right-side-up way to live in this very upside-down world. So each week, we've been looking at these lives, and, and we're welcoming their example as a sort of blueprint, if you will, for this narrative to say, could our lives potentially line up with this? Could this be what it's like? And it is new, and it is different, and it's contradictory, and it is complicated, and it will be, if we live this out together, it will be considered controversial by some. So you're going to see that. You're going to feel that as we dive into this text today. So let me get to it. Acts chapter 10. If you have a Bible, I want you to open up there. Acts chapter 10, the, the story of the early church, the story of Christianity birthing on the scene suddenly takes a very dramatic shift. And the whole focus of what happens in the rest of the book is influenced by what we're going to be seeing today. And I'll talk more about it in the, in the weeks to come. But this is beautiful. And at the same time, it's incredibly challenging. So I'm going to read this. I'm going to read the text, and then I'm going to take some time to explain this in chunks as we understand what, what's really taking place here. So Acts chapter 10, beginning in verse 1, it says this. At Caesarea, there was a man named Cornelius, a centurion of what was known as the Italian cohort, a devout man who feared God with all his household, gave alms generously to the people, and prayed continually to God. About the ninth hour of the day, he saw clearly in a vision an angel of God come in and say to him, Cornelius. And he stared at him in terror and said, What is it, Lord? And he said to him, Your prayers and your alms have ascended as a memorial before God, and now send men to Joppa and bring one Simon who is called Peter. He's lodging with one Simon, a tanner, whose house is by the sea. When the angel who spoke to him had departed, he called two of his servants and a devout soldier among those who attended him. And having related everything to them, he sent them to Joppa. Let me just pause here and fill in some details. Cornelius is a man of war. Cornelius is bound to the Roman state. He's a transplanted European who's living in the Middle East but he's also a master. He is a leader among men. He is a ruler. He is likely wealthy or well-to-do. When you look at Cornelius and you look at his life and you were to transplant him to our culture today, he is what so many men and so many women would be longing for. He has influence. He has power. He has control. We're aspiring to be someone like this, but he also is an anomaly. And he reveals something about us that I think is going to challenge our, our, our sensibilities, and he's going to confirm what I was saying at the start of the sermon. See, up to this point, 
the church, Christianity, has been a Jewish movement. Jewish believers in God see Jesus for who he is as the Messiah, the Jewish Messiah, and they begin to believe, and that's where this, this faith is being born out of. That's what, that's what it's consisting of, our Jewish people. But Cornelius isn't Jewish. And this is why this is critical. Because this non-Jewish person who hasn't been included in the faith of, of Israel, this individual, the text says that he is a God-fearer. So, so first, I think it's critical that we see that this man has it all. That's an important part of this. He has everything, and yet he is still in pursuit of God. Now, why is this? Well, because his position, his possessions, they could never quench his thirst for God. They could never fill that void that's in every human heart. So, so we first need to see that. But then there's this second aspect of what we see here. He's not just a God-fearer. God is actually coming near to him. God is speaking to him. I think this is so good because it challenges how so many people in the church tend to think and behave, and yet it's, it's so consistent with what we know to be true. Um, let me just explain what I'm saying. There is this horrible tendency for people in the church to begin to believe at some point in their journey that God isn't working in the lives of or speaking to the people who um, don't yet know Jesus. It's like those that are on the inside, they can hear Jesus' voice and God speaks to them. But if you're on the outside, then, well, God doesn't speak to you. God doesn't work in your life. We, we draw this line in our thinking and we say, if you stepped across that line of faith, well, then God's working. And if you haven't, then you're just sort of left to your own devices. Like somehow the God of the universe who created this person in his own image, who transcends space and time, can't speak to somebody unless they step across the particular line that we've set. So so what's interesting about this is that many of us, if we consider our own journey, we would say, well, wait a second. When I think about my own life, God was moving and working in my life long before I professed faith in Christ. We just forget about that part of it. And rightly so, because there's a clarity to the voice of God. There's a, a volume to the voice of God once we begin to walk in faith in Jesus. But that doesn't deny the reality that God was working long before that. That's exactly what's being shown us in the story about Cornelius. He doesn't know who Jesus is at all yet, but he has this genuine desire to know God, to be in relationship with this God of the universe. And even in this, God hears him, sees him, and speaks to him. Why? Well, it's because of something we're about to see, and that's that this is a God who shows no partiality. And I think that's a beautiful thing for us to wrestle with and to consider today, especially as God invites us to join him in what he's doing. When God says, I want you to join me in my efforts in the world, I mean, the God who shows no partiality is searching for men and women who will do the same. That's what he's looking for. And if you question the validity of this, I want you to look at what happens next in this story because it's amazing. Verse 9 Acts chapter 10, look at how the story continues. It says the next day. So the next day, right after he has this vision, it says, speaking of Peter, as they were on their journey and approaching the city, Peter went up on the housetop about the sixth hour to pray. And he became hungry and he wanted something to eat. But while they were preparing it, he fell into a trance and saw the heavens opened up and something like a great sheet descending, being let down by its four corners upon the earth. Now, um, first of all, let me just say, trust me in this, I can identify with Peter here. Uh, I love food. And there are times 
when I've almost fallen into a trance because I was so hungry. So I understand this part of the story. I can identify with him. He's waiting. He's hungry. But what takes place next is very different than the trance I fall into. Mine's, mine's called hangry. This is a true vision that God's giving him in this moment. In fact, what God shows him in this next moment changes everything for the church. It changes everything for human history, and it continues to have ripple effects in our society today. There, there's something it says like a great sheet coming out of heaven. We might call it a picnic blanket, if you will. This thing is coming down out of heaven. And then we read this in verse 12. It says, in it were all kinds of animals and reptiles and birds of the air. And there came a loud voice to him, rise, Peter, kill and eat. But Peter said, by no means, Lord, for I have never eaten anything that is common or unclean. And the voice came to him again a second time. What God has made clean, do not call common. This happened three times, and the thing was taken up at once into heaven. So I want you to catch what's going on here. God speaks to Cornelius, and now Peter has this vision. These stories are connecting. What does this mean? Well, it means everything. Because what's being described is a revolution that's about to take place. It may not look like a revolution to you and I, but this is game-changing. This, this sheet, as Peter describes it, descending out of heaven, this is a radical picture, and it shatters and destroys his understanding of the world that he lives in. See, let me just tell you this, that this is a horror to Peter. The sheet contained animals, clean and unclean, appropriate and inappropriate, appealing and repulsive, desired and disgusting. It's everything in his culture and upbringing that would have been forbidden. The, the things that, that, he's, that he's seeing on this sheet together, there are things that he's been given permission to consume as a part of his culture, but then there are things that, that he would literally be thinking in his mind, well, that's what the godless people eat. That's what those people are eating. That's what unclean people eat. And then the word of God comes to him as he's seeing all of these things, foods mixed together that never should have been. And he hears this word from God saying, arise, Peter, kill and eat. And this is so loaded with meaning. These are foods that would have been served on certain people's tables. To eat these foods would mean to fellowship with those people. When God puts this table before him, the only picture that Peter would be concluding is that he would be invited into community with the kinds of people that would be eating these kinds of foods, and Peter can't. He can't bear the thought of it. How could I ever do this? How could I ever violate the laws of my own culture? How could I go to those people? In fact, there's no better word to describe how Peter felt about those people than the word racist. Um, they were looked down upon because of their ethnicity. There was an attitude and culture because of their ethnicity. And by the way, I'm going to mention something right now that I said to somebody today. Um, somebody asked me if I've been um, intentionally crafting anti-racist messages. And I told them, no, I'm just preaching the Bible. It happens to be that the Bible is anti-racist. And we're seeing it right here. So, so Peter has this, this racist tendency inside of him. He can't stand the Gentiles. He can't, he can't imagine the food they eat. He can't imagine fellowshipping with them. And so he objects. And I love that when he objects, God rebukes him like a father to a son. And he says, don't call what I made clean common. Don't you dare call what I have made in my image common. Don't you degrade this being that I have made and love. 
What we realize through this vision is this. Peter, as uncomfortable as this may be, you are being invited, you are being asked to enter in and to become, through eating, a part of something you never imagined you would be a part of. Now, you have to read what happens next because it's so beautiful and it's inspiring and it's very helpful for us, I think, in this season. Because in verse 17, it says, while Peter was inwardly perplexed as to what the vision that he had seen might mean, behold, the men who were sent by Cornelius having made inquiry for Simon's house, stood at the gate and called out to ask whether Simon, who was called Peter, was lodging there. So, so now you start to put all this together, right? God speaks to Cornelius, this Gentile who would have eaten these unclean foods, who was among this disregarded group of people. And, and then God gives this picture to Peter that appears to be an invitation to sit with the unfamiliar, to sit with what was previously rejected, and to sit at those tables and commune with them. And then while he's considering what this thing might mean, there's a knock at the door. And look what happens next. Verse 19, while Peter was pondering the vision, the spirit said to him, behold, three men are looking for you. Rise and go down and accompany them without hesitation, for I've sent them. And Peter went down to the men and said, I'm the one you're looking for. What's the reason for your coming? And they said, Cornelius, a centurion, an upright and God-fearing man who's well spoken of by the whole Jewish nation, was directed by a holy angel to send for you to come to his house and to hear what you have to say. So Peter invited them in to be his guests. And the next day he rose and went away with them. And some of the brothers from Joppa accompanied him. This is so amazing. God puts this table before Peter that challenges everything that's inside of him. And then there's this knock at the door a few minutes later, and three men invite him to be a guest at those people's house. It doesn't get any more clear than this. God is doing a new thing. God is blowing open the doors of our understanding of what he sees when he sees humanity. And he is expecting from Peter and everyone else that would follow Peter, a particular kind of response to these kinds of moments. I want you to catch something. I want you to see this because I think this is a very real teaching moment for all of us right now. Notice what the last part of verse 23 says. It says, the next day he rose and went away with them. Peter goes with them. Peter went to Cornelius he didn't say, you know, I'll tell you what, I'm going to stay here. I'm not comfortable going to your home. I'm not comfortable with the customs that you hold. I'm not comfortable with the way you, you eat. And so would you just have Cornelius come see me here? He doesn't do that. He left with them right in the middle of the pondering, right in the middle of the awkwardness, right in the middle of the God, like, what are you doing? And I, I feel so uncomfortable. I don't know how to relate. I don't know what to do. This is an awkward moment right in the middle of this, of having his attitudes confronted, his racism dealt with. He says yes to the invitation. He is going to be Cornelius's guest in his home. Can imagine how worried and stressed he was on his way there. Like, what's he going to serve for dinner, right? But here's what I want to show you. During his earthly ministry, Jesus, over and over again, chose to be the guest. He was the guest in people's homes. In fact, you don't ever see Jesus being the host. We never see Jesus sending out invitations and saying, everybody come to my house. We're going to have a really good time. Jesus is always the guest. 
And the early church, as we look at the early church, they seem to have taken his example seriously because their going out was defined by their taking on the posture of a guest. The gospel spread in the ancient world because the church was willing to be a guest in the world. And through guests, through people taking risks and going to places that were uncomfortable, the gospel made its way into the hearts of the hosts. That's the way it worked, which is the opposite of how most of us think about the church, especially today. We want to be the host, right? The idea is, well, let's open up our doors. Let's welcome everybody. We've even told ourselves that's the best way for people to meet Jesus is if they just come to us, come into our house, get into this place where we're most comfortable, and that's where you're going to meet Jesus. That's where we want to give people the gospel. We think the way to give people the gospel is to get them to come to our house. But in doing so, we're asking the world to be the guest. And that is the exact opposite of what Jesus did. Now, I don't want you to fixate on the, on the physicality of what I'm talking about. I'm certainly not telling you, okay, never invite anybody to your house again. Like that, that is not what I'm saying. Um, I'm not telling you to stop practicing hospitality. That's still a very good thing to do as a follower of Jesus. But what I am getting at is the posture of our hearts. What I do want you to think about is what is your posture as you move through your days, as you move through this world? See, in order for you to be a guest, you have to begin to let go of your own preferences and submit to others' preferences. You may have to eat at an unfamiliar table. You may have to participate in an unfamiliar, unknown culture. In order to be a guest, you have to live in that very uncomfortable space where you're not sure of all the rules. You don't know how this works. You don't know the words to say or if you said the right thing or not. You end up always feeling a little off balance. You offer up your power. You offer up your control. You even offer up your certainty in these moments. Suddenly you feel unsure. That's what it feels like to be a guest. And you have to be willing to lay down your rights for the rights, the desires, the preference even of another, whether you agree with them or not. That's what it looks like to be a guest. Now, I, I just want to share on a very personal level, uh, I get very anxious when I'm going to go someplace that uh, I'm unfamiliar with. Like if I'm going to, uh, on a vacation to a new place, if I'm going to go to a restaurant I've not been to, uh, if I'm going to an event that I'm, I'm unfamiliar with, I'm, if I'm going anywhere that's new, um, I, I tend to get very nervous. Um, because I like to know how things work. You know, I want to know what's the system, what's the routine, how does stuff happen? Like when I walk through the door, are there certain things I should be doing? And so um, oftentimes before I go anywhere that I haven't been for the first time, I secretly research everything. I mean, I search photos and videos on Google. I ask people that might know something. I try to get intel. I try to paint a picture in my head, trying to make myself be more and more comfortable going into that place. But why do I do that? because I don't like the feeling of uncertainty. I don't like the feeling that maybe I'm not in control, like maybe things aren't gonna go the way I expect them to go. Which also means this, that I naturally, in my flesh, in the natural, I gravitate towards situations and circumstances where I am comfortable. That's what I want, I wanna be comfortable. I don't wanna be someplace where I have to stand on one foot and not feel like I'm fully stable. Which means that the culture of that moment is most likely being defined by or controlled by or set by me. I want to be in the culture that I have defined. I just want to confess to you that that is not a redeemed quality or trait in me. 
That is my natural inclination to be the host, not the guest. And yet over and over again, we see that the heart posture of devoted disciples of Jesus is that of a guest, not a host. That's how they move through the world. That's how they move through their days, which by the way, that resonates with more than just an example. Maybe you look at this and you say, well, that's just how they were living. It's not what we're actually told to do. Well, on the contrary, it actually is what we're told to do. If you listen to to Jesus' own words in Luke chapter 9, verse 23, he says to all, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. And when I was reading that verse over today, I couldn't help but think to myself that right now I see a lot of people who seem awfully set on fighting and scrapping and arguing to save their life. And I'm just watching their life slip through their fingers. They're fighting to remain the host. They're demanding that things have to continue to be my way. And they're missing the mark. Dying to yourself, dying to your rights is one of the primary core principles of what it means to be a Christian. And it strikes at the heart of the cultural myth that is degrading our culture today. In fact, it's one of the reasons why for me, Galatians chapter 2, verse 20, it's one of my favorite verses. And by the way, it's not one of my favorite verses because it's you know, full of, of light and beautiful. It's not like a rainbow that shines through my day every day. Um, it's one of my favorite verses because it's a clear reminder of who I am and what I am in Christ. Galatians chapter 2, verse 20, Paul says, I have been crucified with Christ. I have been crucified, and I no longer live. It's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live, on the other side of knowing Jesus, the life I now live, in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself up for me. Again, he's talking about Jesus leaving heaven, leaving the opportunity to be the host and being a guest in our culture. And then he invites us to say, will you lay down your life? Will you understand that you have died in Christ and now you live in him? It's no longer I who live. It is no longer. What Paul is saying is something we all need to hear. It is no longer about me. It's no longer about selfishness. It's no longer about hyper-individualism or me consuming all that I can consume. I, as it turns out, am a guest in the world. This is why Jesus told his followers that we are aliens. This is why he has described us as being not of this world. That's why he uses this language. And as a guest, as a guest, I am called to carry myself in a particular sort of way, respectfully, lovingly, submitting to the other. I'm grateful for my friend, uh, A.J. Swoboda. He's a great scholar and good friend. And, uh, and this week I ran across this quote of his, and, and I love this. He says this. He says, New Testament scholars tell us that the first miracle in the Gospels is Jesus turning water into wine at a wedding. I think that's wrong. Our tendency is to emphasize the miracle of a God who can turn water into wine. It's a miracle indeed. But we fail to recognize the miracle that precedes that. The first miracle isn't that Jesus turns water into wine at a wedding. The first miracle is that Jesus is the kind of God people want to come to their wedding. I love that. I love that. Because it leaves us with a question. Are we the kind of people that people would want as a guest at their wedding? 
is the way we're behaving, is the way we're responding to culture, is the way we're uh, interacting with individuals in our community, is, is the way that we're living our lives a way that would have people look at us and say, I want you to come to my house, just like they did with Peter, and tell me everything you know about this person, Jesus. Let me just close with this and, and remind you of this. Followers of Jesus, they don't sit back and watch Jesus work. They roll up their sleeves and they get to work right alongside of him. Like an apprentice who's learning from a master tradesman, we are called to do what he did, to live as he lived, to love as he loved, and to be a guest as he was a guest. So right now, I'm going to ask the worship team to, to gather up together, and they're going to close us in just a moment. Um, I'll be back to offer the benediction. But during this time, during this next song, and, and for the next several minutes, I just want to challenge you with this. Are you living like a guest? Or are you demanding to be the host? Are you fighting to save your life when Jesus is inviting you to lay it down for him? I know that's challenging. I know it's hard. Trust me, this isn't a word that I'm just throwing at you. It's a word that I'm speaking to myself because I know this myth of our secular culture is something that's in my heart. It's pervaded my thinking. It's, it's caused me to think the wrong things about what my faith is all about, which is why I need to hear this as much as you do. So let's take some time. Let's pray. Let's worship. Let's think. And I'll close us in just another moment.
singing this song, I'm just reminded of something that Pastor Joe Gruber said at the beginning of this pandemic. We were having a conversation, and many of you may have heard me say this before, but Joe looked at me and he said, man, he goes, this thing, this is not a setback. This is a setup. I truly believe right now in this time, God is taking what the enemy meant for evil, and he's turning it for good. I believe there's a revolution taking place. I believe right now that our church, that B4 Church, is healthier today than it was at the beginning of the pandemic. I think there are more Christians who are more excited about who Jesus is and what he's doing than ever before. And I think there are more people in the world that are leaning in to hear what we have to say than any other time. And so because of that, may you be men and women who they want to invite into their homes. May they lean in because they see the way you're living and the way you're loving, the way that you're a guest May they lean in and see those things and be hungry because Jesus is so alive and active in you. In Jesus' name, amen. We love you guys. Thank you so much for being a part of this. Thank you for contending for authentic Christianity, for us being a real church who's encountering a God who is living and present and with us. We'll see you guys later this week. Have an amazing time until then. See you later.